Welcome to the Money Answer Show with host Jordan Goodman. Whether you are starting out, deep into your retirement, or somewhere in between, the Money Answer Show has the know-how to help you. Now here's your host, Jordan Goodman. Welcome to the Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest for the first half hour is Eddie Gabor. He's a co-owner at Key Advisors Group, LLC, and author of a new book called The Common Sense Bull. Welcome to the Money Answer Show, Eddie. Thank you so much for having me. Let's just start with a little bit of background of how you got into the investment business and, and what your business is today. So I uh, studied economics and finance in college, and um, I actually went into college as an education major, but took a finance class and fell in love with the markets. Uh, and the rest is history. I got into this business in 1998, started our firm, Key Advisors Group, LLC, with my business partner, Doug Ferris, in 2000. And our focus the whole this past 19 years has really been with retirees and pre-retirees focusing on risk management and income distribution strategies uh, that have been pretty successful in these volatile markets we've been in in the last 19 years. Uh, And I talk a lot about that in the book. And so I feel blessed to be working with fantastic, financially independent people that have done things the right way and the fact that they uh, allow us to be part of that success with them. So you, a big part of your book is that you should always be bullish, basically, no matter what's going on in the market. Uh, why are you bullish today? We've had a, a stock market that's gone up pretty much for 10 straight years, the longest bull market in history. Why are you still bullish? Well, I use the word common sense in the book because there's different degrees of bullish. I'm never the type of person that's all in or all out. I try to take a more moderate approach to the investing side. So, for example, there are times when I'm bearish on a short-term standpoint in regards to the markets. Uh, I have been very bullish the last few years, and right now I've actually taken a little bit of a cautious stance short-term because of the inverted yield curve. So I'll never be that person that's just going to say bullish just to be bullish, but frankly, until the fundamentals overall change, I will continue to be bullish on the economy and the markets. But I'm always very conscious of the risk that our clients are taking. So no matter how bullish I've been over the years and all of my market calls on national networks, I try to never put my clients in a position where they're too overweight stock. It's not worth it for them from a risk perspective. But on the flip side, I debate bears frequently who they're bearish no matter what. And I think that type of stance can be harmful to educating investors when you just say the same thing no matter what the fundamentals are. So the inverted yield curve has just happened. This is where short-term rates like three-month treasury bills have gone to a higher yield than long-term bonds like 10-year bonds. Uh, it, it just happened, basically. What do you think is the significance of that? So historically, and I track interest rates a lot in regards to, you know, there's a saying some in our business that sometimes the bond market's smarter than the stock market and sees things that the equity markets may not see. Historically speaking, an inverted yield curve, to your point, where the short-term rates are higher than the 10-year rates has been a recession indicator. That Not that it's going to be happening a minute, immediately, but usually within 13 to 18 months, looking back, that's usually a sign or a warning sign that we could be in a recession uh, or heading into a recession. And so for me to ignore that red flag would be doing my clients a disservice. So this inverted yield curve that did just happen has changed my overly bullish stance short term But I want to wait and see what happens over the upcoming two weeks. I think the Fed made too bold of a statement in regards to what they were going to do with rates because I don't know how in the world they can predict what they're going to do in 2020 
when they've already flipped sides in three months. So I think it's an overreaction to what the Fed said last Wednesday. But whatever it is, it's happening, and I've got to pay attention to that. So what changes would you make if the uh, inverted yield curve stays inverted or becomes more inverted if if short-term rates rise and long-term rates fall further? So I can tell you right now for our clients on the equity side, we're going to be looking more towards dividend-yielding stocks because there will be a flight to quality from an equity perspective. And when yields are low, investors are looking for risk-adjusted returns, and usually those type of value plays have less potential volatility in the equity markets than a more of a growth play. Another area that we would be completely underweight in an inverted yield curve are the banks. And this is a great example. Coming into the year, I was pretty bullish on banks, and they've done well. But once the yield curve started to flat and invert, we are now not bullish on banks. So you've got to be able to make adjustments and not be stubborn based off what the fundamentals are telling you. And banks are going to have a tough time in an inverted yield curve environment. So uh, high-yielding, dividend-paying stocks from an equity perspective is going to be beneficial, in my opinion, now that the rates are as low as they are. And then on the corporate bond side, certainly being on the short end of the yield curve and not locking in long-term bonds in this rate environment. In your book uh, called The Common Sense Bull, you, ha- you talk a lot about um, – cycles, uh, investment cycles. Uh, Where do you think we are in the investment cycle today? So I do think from an economic and investment cycle perspective, we're late cycle, okay? I mean, let's face it. We've had 10 years of this bull market run. Uh, So again, when you're in the late cycle, you want to be a little bit more defensive on the equity side. Now, I will say this, though, and this is one thing that is still, you know, kind of in favor of a bull market is you have not seen that euphoric state from an investment perspective. So when you go and look at the investment cycles and you, you know, hindsight's always twenty twenty. but when you look back, investor sentiment and during a, the late cycle right before you'll usually see big crashes is you have this euphoric state where investors are just all in and they don't really feel as though they're taking any risk because they think markets will do nothing but go up. And one thing I've been saying for years is this has probably been one of the most hated bull markets in history because every time we have a correction, all the bears come out and everyone finds every single reason to sell it, and then they've been proven wrong. So we have not gotten to that euphoric state yet. That makes me concerned from a major imminent crash, but we are definitely late cycle from an economic growth perspective. So one would have to expect we would see some type of recession in the next couple of years. What role would bonds play in your portfolio today? And also in your book, you talk about liking fixed annuities. What role would those play in a typical portfolio for one of your clients today? So it's very interesting. On the, on the individual bond side, so right now with interest rates going haywire, if you look at a bond chart and didn't realize it was a bond chart, you'd think it's an aggressive stock portfolio with how choppy it's been. So what we've done to hedge against rising rates and market volatility is we use a lot of bond ladders. So investment-grade bonds, but we have bond ladders. So every 12 months, those bonds will mature, and we don't go any farther out than five years on that. And when you own the individual bond, we feel from a risk management perspective, you are getting a more predictable income stream than if you just own a bond fund. There's a lot of people probably listening right now that own bond funds in their portfolio. And the problem I have with a bond fund at this cycle in interest rates is there's no maturity date on a bond fund. So when you see rates move, these bond funds are losing, could potentially lose value, where on your individual bonds, 
yes, they will still fluctuate in value, but there's a maturity date. So you know if that company stays solvent at some particular day, you're going to get your money back. And to me, I think that adds a little bit better risk-adjusted return for clients. On the fixed annuity side, what, we, what clients have found has brought value to their portfolio is the biggest risk with bonds, obviously, other than default risk, is they're interest rate sensitive. So when interest rates go up like they did in November, bond prices go down. So they are interest rate sensitive where the fixed annuity gives them a fixed rate and it's not interest rate sensitive. So from a risk management perspective, when you don't have all of your safe money following the same, uh, same charts in regards to volatility, you do reduce your overall volatility. So when interest rates are going up and markets are going down, if someone has a fixed annuity in their portfolio, say 20% or so, then they know that part of their portfolio will not lose value. What kind of yields can you get today on fixed annuities? You know, again, where it would go on a shorter term, so you can say, uh, and there's obviously every company is different, but if I had to put an educated guess on what your average would be, I would say 3 to 4% on a yield inside of those, which is, you know, it's higher than what you get in a 10-year treasury today. Um, and again, you're getting a predictable income stream without the interest rate sensitivity. And look, 3 and 4% 20 years ago didn't sound like a great conservative rate of return, but who would have thought we'd be in a world where bank accounts are paying individuals a half a percent or 1%? Yeah. You, you talked uh, in your book about one of the keys to investment success is diversification. So how do you get the proper diversification for the stage where the client may be? So I think the word diversification gets thrown around too loosely today, you know, where someone will own, you know, again, use mutual funds. We don't use mutual funds at our firm, but I know a lot of people do. So someone could have a basket of mutual funds. And yes, in a sense, they're diversified because their assets are spread across many different stocks and bonds. But what many people don't realize or, or understand or has not been shown is how correlated all those mutual funds are together. And so one thing we look at is correlation. So if we have a diversified portfolio, and again, I'll just use an example of 50% stock, just because it's 50% stock, it doesn't mean all stocks are created equal. So we're going to diversify not only from a stock bond perspective or possibly a fixed annuity, but we're also going to look at how correlated the different stocks are, like consumer staples versus growth stocks, uh, your high-yielding dividend stocks, and preferred stocks for that matter as well, too, to generate income. Uh, so across the board in asset classes, and then I think it's important that whoever you're working with is making tactical changes based off of what's happening in the environment. I think the old set it and forget it is no longer to most individuals' best interest because of how these things change. Like to your point, interest rate just inverted uh, last week. So we are having to make adjustments now due to that. That inverted yield curve wasn't on our radar of it happening right away two weeks ago, but the Fed and they make an announcement, and you have to be able to adjust with what the fundamentals are telling you. So on the stock side, diversification, you're talking about different kinds of stocks, small company, big company, fast growers, high dividends. That, that's the kind of diversification you're talking about within your stock portfolio. Is that right? Correct. And also in the international and emerging market equities within the portfolio as well, too, can play a role in that diversification. So it doesn't all have to be U.S.-based. What is your view of international markets today? Do you think they have better potential than domestic U.S. markets? 
Well, I'm a contrarian by nature, so international markets have underperformed U.S. markets for a while now. And so I do. I think if we get a trade deal with China, that the international markets will have more upside than U.S. markets simply because they're the ones that have really taken a beating the last few years because of trade. You know, the U.S. has been pretty resilient throughout all this trade war conversation, and the international markets have not. So I do. I think international markets could have some, especially the emerging markets, could have more upside from a trade deal than the U.S. Because the U.S. has already priced in some type of trade deal. If we don't get a trade deal, I think the U.S. markets are going to be very challenged. So what would be your way to play emerging markets? Are there specific exchange-traded funds you like or individual stocks? How do you play emerging markets? So on the emerging market side, we will generally go with an ETF uh, in regards to emerging markets versus trying to, you know, handpick individual stocks. So I know one of the emerging market ETFs we have in our portfolio is the VWO. Uh, and that's how we would play it versus trying to be a hero and select those individual stocks on that side. Very good. We're going to take a break. This is Jordan Goodman of The Money Answer Show. My guest for this half hour is Eddie Gabor. He is a co-owner at Key Advisors Group, LLC, and their website is keyadvisorsgroupllc.com. He's also published a new book called The Common Sense Bull, and there's a website related to that as well, which is thecommonsensebull.com. We'll be back after this. When it's time to make a hire for your small business, naturally you want to find the best person for the job. Odds are that person is on LinkedIn. LinkedIn Job makes it easier to get matched with quality candidates who are most qualified for the position you have open. I tried LinkedIn Jobs and was amazed at how fast the perfect candidates I was looking for showed up. LinkedIn Jobs uses knowledge of both hard skills and soft skills to match you with the people who fit your role the best. People come to LinkedIn every day to learn and advance their careers, so LinkedIn understands that they're interested in and looking for which means when you use LinkedIn Jobs to hire someone, your matches are based on so much more than just a resume. Sure, LinkedIn Job matches you based on skills and background, but also on candidates' interests, activities, and passions. Matching lets you quickly get a group of the most relevant, qualified candidates for your position. That way, you can focus on the candidates you want to interview and make a quality hire you're excited about. Customers rate LinkedIn Jobs number one in delivering well-suited hires. Post a job today at linkedin.com slash moneyanswers and get $50 off your first job post. That's linkedin.com slash moneyanswers. Terms and conditions apply. Attention heroes, current and former firefighters, law enforcement, military, medical, or educational professionals. Heroes can receive rewards averaging over $2,500 when they buy, sell, or refinance a home. Heroes come first. Along with the Homes for Heroes is the nation's largest hero reward program. Their mission is to provide extraordinary savings to heroes who provide extraordinary services to our nation and its communities every day. Learn how 
you can purchase a home for no down payment, no closing costs, and get money back at closing. Find out how you can own for less than you may pay for rent. Get your hero rewards at heroescomefirst.com. That's heroes, H-E-R-O-E-S, comefirst.com, 888-437-6114. Jordan Goodman is an affiliate. He recognizes quality solutions, forming relationships to help improve the lives of his listeners. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now. Toll free. 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan. Welcome back to The Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this half hour is Eddie Gabor. Uh, He is a co-owner at Key Advisors Group. You can find out more about him at his website, keyadvisorsgroupllc.com. He's also the author of a new book called The Common Sense Bull. Uh, You can find out about that at his website, thecommonsensebull.com. Welcome back to the show, Eddie. Thank you again for having me. So in the uh, book, you talk about the keys to successful life planning, this is um, beyond just the investment ar- arena. What are some of the keys to successful life planning? Well, the funny thing is, the reason why I put this in the book is most people are probably like, why the heck would you talk about life planning in an investment book or a financial planning book? And what we have found is most people have not done life planning. And everyone's life plan is different. And I would argue you cannot build the right portfolio strategy without knowing that individual's life plan. And I'll give you an example. So when we sit down and coach individuals on how to generate enough income from their portfolios to maintain their standard of living, one of the things we're trying to find out is what are they going to do in their retirement years? You know, I ask that question a lot, and I get a deer in headlights look, because most people, when it comes to retirement planning, all they have focused on is the money aspect of things. They have not created any type of life plan in regards to what are they going to do with their time. I mean, think about how many hours a week people spend working. That's a lot of time you have to fill out. So we help them build a life plan in regards to their goals, their strategies in regards to travel and entertainment and everything else they want to do in their life because that is going to be pretty indicative of what type of investment strategy they need because every one of those life plans have different costs associated with them. So this book talks about that to get people to think about what are they going to do when they do hit their financial goals is how are they going to enjoy their golden years? And the way they're going to do that is by having a solid life plan that will be very gratifying to them. And that is information that every person really should need before they can put together a sound investment portfolio. Very good. In the book, you also talk about the new trends uh, that people should be investing in. So let's just go through them one at a time. The first one is Internet of Things, what's called IoT. What kind of impact is that going to make and how would you invest in that? So, you know, I think what you have to do in this ever-changing environment in regards to this type of technology that we're going to be talking about is this and the artificial intelligence is the way to invest in it. First off, it's the future. Okay, from a technology perspective, the Googles of the world, the Amazons of the world, the Apples of the world are all investing heavily in all this space. And whoever wins in this space is going to be the ones that are going to, their investors are going to be the ones that are going to earn the most money from appreciation because that's the direction 
that businesses are going in. Even our business is talking about having artificial intelligence included in their processing of paperwork, processing of trades, even automating some offices to do robocalls to individuals when their reviews come up and things like that. So this technology, it's the future, and whoever doesn't embrace it and try to get ahead of it is going to get eaten up by their competition. So when I talk about the artificial intelligence inside in this book and what the future looks like, that's where it is in that space, and it's a very aggressive space. So how you can profit from it is obviously investing in companies that you think will be successful in that space. A more aggressive approach, uh, which our clients don't take that type of risk, but a more aggressive approach would be trying to find a small company that really does well. That could be a potential buyout by an Amazon or a Google or an Apple. And again, that's why I have been bullish. You know, three years ago, I made a market call on Amazon after it already had a run-up, and people, some people, bears thought I was crazy, and it nearly tripled from there. And that was the reason is they're investing in this, and I think that is absolutely the future of where businesses are going to go. Now, the negative to that is it could replace some jobs. You know, that's one of the concerns with artificial intelligence is if it becomes – you know, too good, for lack of a better word, it can replace human beings and their jobs because this artificial intelligence can work 24-7. So it can be good from an efficiency and profitability perspective for corporations, but it can also be a negative thing into the workforce. And I think that is the challenge and dilemma with companies in regards to, you know, how aggressive they're going to be in this space. Another new trend you talk about is big data and how that should be analyzed. Again, what are some ways to invest based on manipulation and analyzing of big data? Well, again, I don't want to sound like a a broken record, but um, in regards to big data, you know, the more data, now I will say this, let me back up a little bit as well too. I think a big risk with some of these companies is the fact that they're not really, there's not a lot of regulation in that space, okay? And you're starting to hear some noise uh, with Facebook and uh, Google, as well as uh, Twitter, with some things going out. So I think one risk this space does have is regulation risk. So I do caution investors in regards to you know big data opportunities as well as artificial uh, intelligence opportunities and who you're going to invest in is know that depending upon what type of regulation hits this space potentially it could be a drag down to that sector. So I do want to make sure I bring that up to your listeners is that is a concern that we have because with more data, there's more potential data breaches and possible conflicts in regards to privacy issues that we've seen all these fines getting thrown out. So I think there will be some type of regulation in that space that could bring some harm on a short-term basis But overall, again, I think the big data analytics, the artificial intelligence, and all this future of technology is a great, great opportunity for long-term investors. Another one you talk about is blockchain. That's got applications to much more than just cryptocurrencies. How do you see blockchain uh, kind of going out, and how do we invest in that? So I think in regards to blockchain, you are seeing, to your point, you know, everyone who hears blockchain and they just automatically think of the cryptocurrencies. And I've not been real keen on the cryptocurrencies, but I am keen on the technology. You know, you're hearing from companies how, uh, I won't name any specific companies, but there are companies that are investing a lot in blockchain because, again, 
they're finding that the technology is a relevant technology that will make these companies more efficient. And at the end of the day, with all this data that's out there today, the faster these companies can push this data out and they can analyze the analytics, the quicker they can get in front of the consumer and turn that consumer into a customer. And that's the rat race that this industry is in right now. Because, again, when you look at everything from Amazon to Google to Facebook, they've got a tremendous amount of data. And all this technology wrapped around it, that's why you're seeing all the advertisers trying to get a piece of this. Because this analytic information they have to consumers is very powerful. And the quicker they can automate it, the quicker they can turn a profit. And the last one you talked about is robotics. We've got a lot of robots out there now, but where is robotics going to go in the future? And again, how would you invest in it? So I think robotics, again, it's kind of all indirectly tied together. But, you know, look, at, uh, look in the medical field today. It's called a robotic surgery. I know just in our area, and I'm in a small rural area of Lewis, Delaware, you know, they're having their local hospitals building a whole center just for robotic surgery. Uh, again, there's always, it can be scary, especially when you think about this, that, you know, you're going to have a robot do some type of surgery or heart surgery. But the, again, the idea is with the robotics and the inte- artificial intelligence out there today is that they could potentially be more accurate and more efficient, and they can do more than a human being because they are a machine. And if they can do it at a higher success rate, it is a win-win from a business perspective. So I think the healthcare industry is an area you can benefit from in this space. And I know right now for us, again, being that we're in late cycle and we're looking at different types of sectors to be invested in, we are defensive on our equity side for a portion of our portfolios. And those portfolios have healthcare as an overweight because I think with the aging demographics in our country, there's going to be natural demand for this space. And what that does is that gives you some cushion when we do have a recession because you want to be in areas that are still going to have natural demand when things slow down. In about two minutes we have left, just want to kind of sum up where you stand today with the markets. Your book, uh, The Common Sense Bull, you say basically you should be bullish. Kind of give us a summary of what we've talked about the last half hour. So in regards to summary, on a short-term basis, I feel we're going to be flat to downwards in the market due until we get clarity on China, okay, as well as with this inverted yield curve. If we get clarity on China, and what I mean by clarity is an actual deal made, then I think you'll see the yield spreads widen. I think you'll see the international economy start to bounce back, and I think 2019 will finish out to be a double-digit year for the S&P 500. In regards to the overall of what we discussed today, There are lots of things to be bullish about long-term, but I still focus on risk management. The one strategy of owning individual bonds versus bond funds that we talked about, that I talk about in the book, there are other things in the book that hopefully will shed light for investors that they can put together in their portfolio that they can still be bullish overall, but not put themselves at a tremendous amount of overweight risk to the equity markets. So again, although I'm bullish by nature, I am also not blind to the fundamentals. And when the fundamentals change, I change my stance in regards to strategies. Very good. Well, thanks so much. My guest this half hour has been Eddie Gabor. Uh, his new book is called The Common Sense Bull, and there is a website related to that, thecommonsensebull.com. You can also find out more about him at his firm's website, which is Key Advisors Group, LLC. 
com. Thanks so much for being on the Money Answer Show, Eddie. Thank you. And we'll be back after this. When it's time to make a hire for your small business, naturally you want to find the best person for the job. Odds are that person is on LinkedIn. LinkedIn Jobs makes it easy to get matched with quality candidates who are most qualified for the position you have open. I tried LinkedIn Jobs and was amazed at how fast the perfect candidates I was looking for showed up. LinkedIn Jobs uses knowledge of both hard skills and soft skills to match you with the people that fit your role best. Um, people come to uh, LinkedIn every day uh, to learn and advance their careers. So LinkedIn understands uh, exactly what they're interested in and looking for, which means when you use LinkedIn jobs to hire someone, your matches are based on so much more than just a resume. Sure, your LinkedIn jobs matches are based on skills and background, but also on the candidate's interests, activities, and passions. Matching lets you quickly get a group of the most relevant, qualified candidates for your position. That way you can focus on the candidates you want to interview and make a quality hire you're excited about. Customers rate LinkedIn Jobs number one in delivering well-suited hires. Post a job today at linkedin.com slash moneyanswers and get $50 off your first job post. That's linkedin.com slash moneyanswers. Terms and conditions apply. Stocks, bonds, investment opportunities, financial news, and talk. We can help. Call us now toll-free, 866-472-5790. 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. Do you or someone you love have a life insurance policy that's no longer needed or not affordable? Did you know that you can sell your policy for cash? Your reason for buying life insurance has probably changed. Thousands of Americans turn to life insurance settlements to help sell their policies. They act as your representative, getting the highest market offer for you. You've got nothing to lose by simply inquiring. If you're over 64 with $100,000 or more of life insurance, you may already qualify. Call 877-485-6681 to get your free non-binding appraisal or visit FundingLife.com. Life Insurance Settlements. Discover the true value of your life insurance. 877-485-6681. Jordan Goodman is an affiliate. He recognizes quality solutions, forming relationships to help improve the lives of his listeners. You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan. Welcome back to The Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest for this half hour is Dan Pilla. He is the executive director of the Tax Freedom Institute. He helps people battle the IRS in various ways. Welcome back to the show, Dan. Hey, Jordan. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Let's get a little bit of your background uh, and how you've got to where you are today as the one of the leading people battling on behalf of taxpayers with the IRS. Yeah, I got started in the, in the mid-19, actually the late 1970s as a result of problems my father had with the IRS. Jordan, he had a small business here in our hometown of St. Paul, Minnesota, got behind on his employees withholding taxes, and then in 1974, the IRS padlocked the doors and auctioned the equipment off for just a couple cents on the dollar. And then in 1978, uh, when I was about 18 years old, they turned their attention to our family home, and they tried to seize and sell it. 
And that's when I got involved. I came home one day, and my mom is sitting at the table with an envelope in her hand from the IRS, and she hands me this letter, and she says, what do you make of this? And I, well, I read the letter, and I said, it looks like they're going to try to seize the house. She said, well, what do we do about it? Well, of course, I didn't know what to do about it. Well, what I did do is I went over to the local law school law library, and I started fumbling around in the Internal Revenue Code, and I didn't even know what I was looking for. But I, I literally stumbled onto an area of the tax code that deals with taxpayers' rights issues and limits the power of the IRS. And I started reading in that code section, and I didn't get six pages into it and discovered that the IRS was proceeding illegally to seize our home. And so uh, under the circumstances, I did what any 18-year-old would do. I sued the IRS. And I found myself in a federal courtroom a couple of months later, uh, opposed by an IRS attorney that the, uh, that the government flew in from Washington, D.C. He was actually a Justice Department lawyer. And he tried to have my case thrown out of court. And, and I stood up and I said, Judge, you know, the, the law says this, and they're trying to do something different, and they should not be able to get away with that. And, and I sat down, and my argument, my argument was about that polished, and that was about the extent of it. And uh, this, uh, this Justice Department attorney stood up, and he started blathering things about court cases this and statutes that, and he was going on and on. And I didn't have any idea what he was talking about, but when he was finished, the judge looked at him and pointed at me and said, he's right. And he slammed the gavel, and I thought, well, this is easy. And so I've been, I've been uh, stopped. I, was stop- I stopped him from taking my parents' house, and I've been stopping him ever since. Wow. So um, you're an advocate of taxpayer rights, but the IRS seems to get it more and more powerful all the time. Just give us a sense of the new progress that they've been making. They've got uh, a, a contract with something called Palantir. Just give us a sense of the direction that the IRS is going as far as collecting more and more data on people. Well, yeah, the, the thing, the, what's going on here, Jordan, is we've got, a, uh, we've got an income-based uh, system, as you well know, which means that the IRS has got to know what your income is in order for them to assess the proper tax liability. And the income tax system relies uh, primarily on a person's willingness to voluntarily disclose, quote-unquote, voluntary. Of course, there's nothing voluntary about it, but, the, but to, uh, to uh, uh, voluntarily give over information to the IRS about their own affairs. And the IRS screws themselves into the ground trying to find as much detail as they can because they believe, Jordan, their literature supports the proposition that they believe every person in America is cheating on their tax return, not so much by, hiding, by, by inflating deductions, but rather by hiding income. They believe that hiding income is the number one thing that goes on. And, and whether or not they're right, I personally obviously don't believe that, but the fact of the matter is they believe it, and so they're doing everything they possibly can to track every single transaction of every person to be able to find where you're hiding the, the $100 in cash they think you got stashed in your underwear drawer. They want to be able to do that. And, and so this, this, uh, this contract that you mentioned with the uh, with uh, Palantir Technologies in a, a California company is designed to allow the IRS to assimilate and, and essentially sort out and put into usable form the massive amounts of data that are flowing into the IRS every year. You know, just for example, they get 152 million individual income tax returns every year. But that's really just, just the smallest component of the information they get because they're, they're going to get in this filing season, by the, time, uh, by the time this filing season washes out, they're going to have more than 3 billion 
billion information returns. We're talking about forms W two and ten eighty nine, those types of things, and and this is this is massive amounts of data, and these are and and you know the ten ninety nines have. Are, are, are uh, you know, cover every kind of transaction you can imagine. The W-2s, of course, are, are wages and so forth that are paid by, by employers, uh, but, there's, but there's other types of information returns as well, and this stuff flows into the IRS, and they need to be able to assimilate this data. And so the program that they're looking for, uh, they, they, they paid about $100 million now to this company, uh, Palantir, to develop a program, a computer program, that's going to allow them to search and analyze and visualize and interact with this wide variety of disparate data sources so that the users can leverage the information to create, uh, to show patterns and links and to, to establish statistical behavior and behavioral patterns. And, and, I mean, it just goes on and on from there. So this is what they're doing right now to, to leverage the data they have in their possession. And so how will the taxpayers see that being different from what they've had in the past? Will there be more audits? or you're more likely to get caught if you're hiding income, what will be the, the difference the taxpayers will see? Well, well, what the taxpayers are going to feel is a situation where the IRS has got access to, to not only this, this information that we're talking about here, but the 1099s, W-2s, but, but database information as well. I mean, we're talking about their capacity to get bank records, mortgage records, credit card records, uh, telephone records, email records, uh, um, records of social media posts. We're talking about the, the, the influx of all this data into the Internal Revenue Service and not just data in its raw form, but, but data in the form that uh, these programs will allow them to sort it out. So what that means is, is let me just give you an example. Suppose, suppose uh, somebody posts on their Facebook site uh, uh, you know, pictures and, 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 and descriptions of this magnificent vacation they had in Hawaii for two weeks with the family. And so now this particular individual is under audit, or not even under audit, let's say. And the IRS is looking at, is looking at these things, and, and they see that we've got a two-week Hawaii vacation with a family of four or five people, and they look at the tax return of this individual, and, it's, and the tax return shows that they're making, let's say, 40000 a year, and the computers say, to say uh, through the analysis process, a person making forty grand a year can't afford a two-week vacation in Hawaii for a family of five. And so under that scenario, that triggers an audit, and the individual going through the audit doesn't, doesn't even realize that their Facebook posts were the things that were responsible for triggering the, uh, triggering the audit. So these are yep. the kinds of things that we're seeing here, this, this massive information brought to bear at an individual level. Isn't this invading consumer privacy, taxpayer privacy? Are there some laws to protect consumer well, privacy against these kind of things? Yeah, the the problem with that, Jordan, is there's no such thing as taxpayer privacy. Uh, you know, there, there's a there's a confidentiality statute in the Internal Revenue Code, and and basically what that statute does is it prevents your spouse from getting information about you. It doesn't prevent the IRS or or frankly any other government agency from gaining information. And not and not only that, it doesn't prevent uh, it doesn't prevent. Uh, uh, other governments from getting get, getting the information. So state government agencies can get it, local government agencies can get it, and even, frankly, under certain circumstances, foreign governments can get your so-called confidential tax information. But as far as confidentiality from the government, that's just a thing of the past. There's, there just is no such thing as that. So I thought there was a Taxpayer Bill of Rights passed somewhat recently. Is, is that being ignored, or, or what is happening to Taxpayer Bill of Rights? 
Well, there is a taxpayer bill of rights. You're exactly right. It was passed uh, not too long ago. I think it was 2016 is when it was uh, actually, maybe 2017, actually codified into law. And, and there's no question that the taxpayer bill of rights gives you a right to confidentiality. But it's not confidentiality from the government. It's confidentiality from other third parties. You know, I gave you the, the example of your wife not, or your, your, your wife not being able to get information about you. Uh, and, and so in order for an individual citizen to gain access to the private records of a taxpayer, there has to be a, uh, there has to be a, a uh, proper disclosure authorization in place. But government agencies can get it. That's the thing. Government agencies can get the records. So how do you mount a defense against such a powerful agency when they've got all this information and they're, they're very powerful and uh, people are scared by them? How can you defend taxpayers against that? Well, the, 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 the one good thing about having an internal revenue code that consists of four million words, Jordan, is the fact that the IRS doesn't read the law either. <laughs> All right, so you know, very few people in America understand the tax law, and, and, uh, and the IRS isn't any better at understanding it than you are. And, and that might seem counterintuitive, but it's absolutely true. And as a matter of fact, in the National Taxpayer Advocates' uh, 2018 annual report to Congress, which was released just a few weeks ago, about six weeks ago, she continues to point out uh, that the IRS's, uh, um, the IRS's pattern of giving erroneous information to taxpayers is problematical and it's ongoing. So the IRS doesn't know the law any better than most individuals know the law. And so when you're going through a tax audit situation, uh, the IRS makes mistakes all the time. In fact, in my, in my book, How to Win Your Tax Audit, I document in that book uh, that the IRS's audit results are wrong between 60 to 90% of the time, depending on what kind of issue we're talking about. And so what has to happen is taxpayers need to understand, people need to understand that the decision of tax auditors in an audit situation is never final. You always have the right to challenge it. Your challenge will take you to what uh, what's called the Office of Appeals, whose written job description is to negotiate settlements with taxpayers, and that's where you're going to be successful with your case on appeal to the appeals office. Very good. All right, we're going to take a break. Uh, this is Jordan Goodman of The Money Answer Show. My guest for this half hour is Dan Pila. He is the executive director at the Tax Freedom Institute. Uh, he helps defend taxpayers against the IRS in all the ways we've been talking about. A website to find out more about him is TaxHelpOnline.com. I'd like to tell you about a very enjoyable experience I just had cooking an every plate meal at home with my girlfriend, Mary. Every plate delivered all the ingredients we needed, and we made a skillet with pork chops topped with apple and green beans and sweet potatoes. It took about 30 minutes from start to when we served it. We also made a beef banh mai bowl, which came with rice, carrots, and cucumber. Both these dishes were delicious. While other at-home dinner options cost about $10 a serving, Every Plate offers five chef-designed healthy recipes every week for just $4.99 per serving. Every Plate does the meal planning, shopping, and prepping for you, taking the time-consuming guesswork out of cooking. I found each recipe very easy to follow, which took the stress out of cooking dinner. I encourage you to give Every Plate a try. For six free meals across your first three weeks and free shipping on your first delivery, go to everyplate.com and enter Money Answers 6. That's Money Answers, the number 6. This offer equals one-third off each of your first three boxes. 
That means you'll get 18 full meals for just $3.33 a piece for a two-person meal or 36 full meals for $4.16 a piece on the four-person plan. As a listener to The Money Answer Show, you also get free shipping on your first delivery, bring the cost of your first box down to just $20. To try out this offer, go to everyplate.com and enter Money Answer 6. That's Money Answers the number 6. And enjoy a delicious, low-priced dinner in your home. We'll be back after this. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. Are you a homeowner tired of making monthly mortgage payments with little progress towards paying down your principal? Does paying off your home in five to seven years without making larger or more frequent payments sound appealing? Paying off your home in full in five to seven years is really possible thanks to Truth in Equity's Mortgage Equity Optimization System, a money management approach that puts your money to work for you 24-7. If you own a home with some equity, have a decent credit score and verifiable income, you owe it to yourself to learn more about Truth in Equity's program. There's no need to replace your mortgage or refinance in many cases. The system works for new home purchases as well as current mortgages. Your home is your largest investment. Own it outright in five to seven years. Call Truth and Equity, 888-262-5540 or visit truthandequity.com, 888-262-5540. Jordan Goodman is an affiliate. He recognizes quality solutions, forming relationships to help improve the lives of his listeners. You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan. Welcome back to The Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this half hour is Dan Pilla. He is the executive director of the Tax Freedom Institute, and he fights on behalf of taxpayers against the IRS. His website, you can find out more, is taxhelponline.com. Welcome back to the show, Dan. My pleasure, Jordan. You have a book called How to Get Tax Amnesty. Tell us a little bit about how that process works. Yeah, the, the, the book How to Get Tax Amnesty is specifically written for folks that have a tax collection problem. In other words, there's no dispute about what they owe. They just can't pay the money. And we've got 25, plus or minus 25 million people out there right now that got some kind of tax debt they owe and can't pay. And so these folks are facing uh, tax liens in just about every situation. Uh, wage levies, bank levies are very common. About 3.5 million third-party levies every single year are issued by the IRS. And, uh, and, and in some cases, worst-case scenarios, property seizures, where folks actually lose uh, you know, things like an automobile or a second home or those types of things. And, and these are very real problems. And the book, How to Get Tax Amnesty, walks you through all of the various programs that the IRS operates that allow you to negotiate a settlement with them, you know, whether we're talking about an installment agreement or we're talking about a compromise deal with the IRS or perhaps even shutting down collection altogether based on your financial situation. And so this book takes you step-by-step through all of those procedures to reduce or eliminate tax debts that you can't pay. One particular one is called an offer in compromise. Is that right? What is the procedure in arranging an offer in compromise? 
Yeah, and offering compromises is really the flagship program of, of these settlement options, and there's, there's a number of, uh, under the broad heading offering compromises, a number of different programs, but let me talk about the most common one, and let's just say you owe the IRS hundred grand, and you say, look, guys, there's, there's no way I can pay $100,000. In, in that situation, you'd go into the IRS and say, look, guys, I can pay you ten or fifteen or let's say 20000 whatever the number is. The IRS looks at two factors in figuring out what that number is. The first factor is your, is your realizable equity and assets, and the second factor is your ability to make a payment over time. So if, if between those two elements you cannot pay the tax within the window of time that the IRS looks at, then they'll do a compromise. And, and maybe it'll be a settlement for 10 cents or 15 or 20 cents on the dollar. It just depends on your individual facts and circumstances. But once that offer is accepted, Jordan, that delinquent tax liability is washed away. The slate is wiped clean, assuming, of course, you live up to the terms of the offer, which is to pay the offer amount, and then file your tax returns and pay your taxes on time for the next five years. If you don't do that, then they'll, then they'll reinstate the liability. Yeah. Now, but normally when people get debt forgiveness, like the offer and compromise we just talked about, that's considered uh, a taxable gain. It's like uh, uh, imputed income, I guess they call it. You, you also talk about how to eliminate the tax on debt forgiveness. How do people do that? Well, there, there's, there's a common misunderstanding about negotiating with the IRS. If you get debt forgiveness on a debt owed the IRS, then there is no debt forgiveness income attributable to that. And the reason is because the IRS never loaned you money in the first place. It's not a forgiveness of, of, uh, of economic uh, substance that flowed in your direction. Where we have the problem of debt forgiveness is if you're negotiating, let's say, with a bank or a credit card company. If a bank lends you $50,000 to run your business, and you don't, you don't pay taxes on the 50 grand when you get it because you're obliged to pay it back over time with interest. So now, after, after a period of time, let's say you paid 5,000 and, uh, and you, you run into, you run into problems and the bank forgives the $45,000 debt. Well, now what happened is you received 45,000 from the bank that you never had to pay back and you used that money for something. And so the tax code takes the position that that unpaid debt is income to you. However, the Internal Revenue Code contains uh, about a dozen exceptions, Jordan, and this is where people get themselves into trouble. They think that just because they get a 1099 from the creditor, the credit card company or bank or whatever, saying you've had this income, that they believe it's automatically taxable, and it's not because the Internal Revenue Code has all these exceptions to the rule, and I document these exceptions in the book, How to Eliminate Taxes on Debt Forgiveness, and I show you exactly how just about every person out there that's gotten debt forgiveness falls into one of these exceptions. And the most common one, the single most common one, is the insolvency exception, which means very simply, if you have more debts than you have assets at the time the debt is forgiven, then that is considered insolvency. And to the extent uh, that, your, that your loan was forgiven at a time when you were insolvent, that income is not taxable. But the problem is the burden of proof is on the taxpayer. And this is true in any, in any situation where you're dealing with the IRS. The burden of proof is on the taxpayer. You have to demonstrate that you were insolvent. There's a specific formula for doing that, which I show you in the book. And when you can prove that, you're not going to be taxed on that debt forgiveness income. At your website, taxhelponline.com, what are some of the services you offer to people who are battling with the IRS? And I assume you work with state agencies as well. Is that right? 
yeah, yeah, yeah. First of all, of course, all of my books are, are, are available on the site. We also have a lot of free information on the website, Jordan, and I want to emphasize that, that there's a number of special reports that I've written on various topics uh, that are available on the website. Uh, we also have a, a, a long list of, of question-answer type formats. If you're having a particular problem with the IRS, I give you definitive information on how to deal with that particular problem, and then we also have consultation services where if, if folks have a specific problem with the IRS and they want specific guidance, they can talk to me directly, and I'll tell you this, you purchase any book from us off our website, you've got to do it off, off the website, though, you've got to go to taxhelponline.com to get this service, and that is you buy any book off the website, and you'll get a free 15-minute consultation directly with me personally about your situation. What are some of the most common things that you're dealing with with the IRS that you're able to help people with? Well, about 80%, probably 75% of all the cases that I deal with are collection cases where people say, I owe this money and I can't pay. So in that situation, uh, you know, we do a financial analysis, income expenses, assets and liabilities, and then we figure out from that analysis what specific program is going to be best for you. Are you going to be able to resolve this through some kind of a reasonable installment agreement? Uh, or, which is very common, the IRS forces people into an installment agreement they can't pay. And so in that scenario, we get the agreement renegotiated to something that's reasonable. Maybe you don't have the capacity to make a payment at all. Maybe you're either unemployed or underemployed, and you just simply don't have the money to make any kind of a payment to the IRS. In that scenario, I walk you through the ability to get the collection account frozen completely. Another very common problem, Jordan, that I help people with is how to get off what I call the tax debt treadmill. And I see this so often <laughs> that I've actually got a name for it, the tax debt treadmill, where people are using current tax revenue to pay their back tax liability. And so what happens is you never get your problem solved when you're stuck in that trap because you're always one more year behind every time April 15th rolls around and you don't have the money to pay because you used it to, to try to work out the delinquency. You just get yourself in deeper and deeper. And so I help people to to get off the tax debt treadmill, treadmill, to get current with their tax liabilities going forward. Because here's the thing you need to understand. This is, I call this pillars first rule of tax debt management. And that is if you've got money to pay the current taxes or money to pay the back taxes, but not both, never pay the back taxes. Now, I know this sounds counterintuitive, but here's what the truth is. If you, if you have ongoing delinquencies... The IRS is never going to play ball with you on the, on, the, on the old stuff, all right? I don't care if you offer them 98% of what you owe them. They won't take the deal if you're not current. And by current, I mean you're paying your current year's taxes. Now we're in 2019, so you've got to be paying your 2019 taxes. On the other hand, if you are current, no tax return filing delinquencies, and you're paying the current year's tax revenue on time, I don't care if you owe them $5 million, $10 million, $20 million, it doesn't matter. They'll play ball with you on the old stuff and work out some kind of resolution if you're current going forward. That's why it's so important to get off the treadmill. Very good. Let's just talk about what's happening with tax refunds. There's been a lot of confusion. Are tax refunds coming in higher or lower than people expected so far this year? Well, when the hubbub was first you know, was, was first uh, um, uh, announced, let's say, in, in, uh, in mid-February, the, uh, the data showed that the refunds were down by about 9%. Now, the average tax refund is about three grand. You know, so we're talking about less than, <laughs> less than $300 of, of reduced refund. But that was a small sample size. 
you know, it, it, there was only 20% of the tax returns had been filed by about the time that those numbers were released. And so all of these people went crazy saying, saying, see, Trump's tax law was nothing but tax cuts for the rich, which, was, which is just completely, absolutely not true. And I said at the time that the reason the refunds were down, well, first of all, we can't, we can't know that they're down because the sample size is too small. But secondly, the IRS adjusted the withholding tables in January of 2018, so less money was taken out of people's paychecks to begin with. So naturally, the refunds would be down, assuming all other things were equal. But the fact is that the bottom 80% of income earners in the United States are going to see a tax cut in 2019. Now, the most recent data that was released the first week of February, after about half the tax returns have been filed, actually a little more than half, by that time, showed that the refunds are up by 1%. So not only did people get more money in their paychecks every month, but their refunds are bigger as well. Very good. Well, thanks so much. My guest this hour has been Dan Pillow. He is the executive director at the Tax Freedom Institute. You can see he's a big fighter against the IRS. He's been doing this a long time. You can find out more about him at his website, which is taxhelponline.com. He's got a lot of books, a lot of ways to help you if you're battling the IRS. Thanks so much for being a great show on The Money Answer Show, Dan. Hey, my pleasure. Thanks for having me, Jordan. I appreciate it. Thanks again. We'll be back next week with another edition of The Money Answer Show. Goodbye for now. Thank you for joining Jordan Goodman and The Money Answer Show. If you have a question for Jordan, please visit his website at www.moneyanswers.com. And be sure to tune in every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time right here on Voice America Business. See you next week.